one. We're going to conclude this chapter this evening. And there it is. It's been quite a journey already, and we're only still in chapter one. So there's there's so much left to go here. To twenty one more chapters, and and uh, who knows how long that's going to take. Well, the Lord does. We don't, but it's okay. We're going to conclude this uh, this chapter with uh, verses seventeen to twenty. It doesn't seem like a whole lot there, and some of it we've already kind of covered. We've touched upon a few of these verses as we've seen how the Lord is actually interpreting certain things. We'll see that tonight, too. The Lord is interpreting certain of the symbols of uh, Revelation so that we can understand them as we go. Because the book is a revelation. It is something that's being revealed. So it's, not, it's nothing that's being hidden. If we ever get the idea that the book of Revelation is something to be hidden, we've got the totally wrong idea. Revelation is to be revealed. It is to be made known. And uh, it is not only to be made known, but it is to become a blessing to all who read uh, this uh, book out loud. So we've covered that already. But let's look at verses 17 through 20. And you have to remember now, John, the apostle, has, has now seen... The glorified Christ. He has seen with his eyes Jesus. In the way that he's been described in in verses 12 through 16. And what we see in verses 12 through 16 is the Jesus of today. The, The Jesus of the present. The risen Lord. The glorified Lord. The glorified Savior. So when that happens, what happens to John? Well, verse 17, John tells us. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now you want to take hold of that thought tonight. Because I, I, because I want to make a statement about... Worship in churches today. That does not even come close to this. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Now we're going to be talking about keys this evening, and this is the key to the book of Revelation. The key that unlocks our understanding of the whole book in general. Write the things which thou hast seen. Past tense. The things which are. Present tense. And the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand. 
and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Jesus makes it really easy for us, right? Tells us exactly what they are. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Human nature, if given the opportunity to see a vision of Jesus as John saw Jesus, would not be able to sustain such a glorious appearance, no matter how devout or how pure of heart a person viewing the vision would be. And yet, in a very strange way, this was John's preparation for receiving such a weighty prophecy. And I speak of the whole of the book of Revelation. As Daniel of old, and you think about the life of Daniel, if you go back and read Daniel, and you, what we need to do is read Daniel hand in hand with the book of Revelation. So if you're studying Revelation very seriously with us, you need to be reading the book of Daniel along the way. And you'll see how closely tied these two lives are. And you look at what Daniel had to endure, the, the sufferings that Daniel had to endure as someone who was, who was taken out of his homeland and, and, and taken into captivity. And, and then to spend so much of his life in captivity. And yet he was devoted to the Lord. He was dedicated to God, dedicated to God's Word. And even when having to face the trials of his, of his life in the midst of the Babylonian Empire, and the other empires that he served under. Here was a life that was being prepared for the weightiness of the prophecies that God revealed to him in the book of Daniel. So as Daniel of old, whom John uniquely resembles, a great reducing of that nature. The reducing of that human nature usually precedes a large and significant communication of spiritual or heavenly things. And in fact, you can apply that to the, the prophets as well as to the, the, uh, the apostles to some extent and to some degree. And what I mean by all of that is that, that John, before the Lord suffered on our behalf, he was so intimate with Jesus. So much so that he is described as leaning on his breast, on the breast of his Lord. He's leaning on his bosom and actually calling himself, what does he call himself? The disciple that Jesus loved. John would, would nearly 70 years later, from that time that he spent with Jesus, at an advanced stage, he would be struck to the ground at the sight of his glorified Savior. The holiness of God brought John to his knees and then to his face as if dead. But here's a question. Or did he really die? If we were afforded the opportunity to look into the very face of the glorified Christ, would we die? Could there be a picture here of dying to live? In other words, death to resurrection. John falls to his face as dead. 
But then we see Jesus touch him. You know, there is indeed a sense in which God, before we get to Jesus touching him, there's this sense in which God wants his glory to affect our lives. God wants His glory, His refulgence, effulgence, to affect our lives. That's why I oftentimes wonder when I look out amongst our services, not this one of course, you all are so wonderful. But when we have so many people that are here visiting with us, and they come, and then they, even some people have been with us a long time, and yet I look and I said. Is anything that's happening here affecting you? Is something stirring in you? Knowing that we are together in the presence of Almighty God, in the presence of a risen Christ. Has it affected our hearts? Did it affect our lives when we came through that door today? Realizing we were coming in here to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Oh. So... There is that sense in which God wants His glory to affect our lives. John's describing Jesus' glory in verses 12 through 16. Certainly, listen, it was certainly meant to rub off a bit on the churches He was commanded to write to. John is saying to the churches, and remember, these are churches that were familiar with John's ministry because John had been in Ephesus. So they, they, they would take John's word, knowing that he had been with Jesus when Jesus was here in his earthly ministry. They're taking him, I mean, they're taking him seriously. He saw the glorified Christ. And he's writing to these churches. Because they needed to be affected by the glory of Jesus. People throughout the scriptures were affected by the glory of, of God. Moses found out that when he spent time with God, the glory rubbed off on him, so to speak. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. Oh, by the way, keys. I forgot to put that up there. Keys, a lot of keys tonight. Exodus 34, verses 29 and 30. And it came to pass... When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in Moses' hand. What is he carrying? The Ten Commandments. The two tablets. When he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not, which means that Moses did not know. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone. In other, in other words, it shined. And they were afraid to come nigh him, which means they were afraid, afraid to come near him. They saw the glory on Moses' face. The glory of God rubs off on those who understand the preciousness of that communion with God. Think for a moment of the blessing that you are given after every meeting, every time that we meet with God in His Word. A blessing spoken 
by the priesthood of Aaron over God's people. And they were commanded to bless God's people this way. Look at number 6, 22 through 26. I probably read that. Let's see. There it is. Okay. Got to split this one up a little bit. No, it's all there. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses. By the way, if you ever want to know about the blessing that you're given before you leave here every, every week, here it is. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise you shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. Now notice this. The Lord make his face shine upon thee. The blessing is, I want God's glory to shine upon you. Because you've heard his word. You've been in his presence. So let the glory of the Lord shine upon you and be gracious unto thee. God wants to be gracious unto every one of you when you leave this place. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. I think of the experience that Peter, James, and John had with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. The account is given to us by Matthew. It says, And after six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and and bringeth them up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. In other words, he was transfigured. Figure, which means he was changed, visibly changed in the presence of those three men, of those three disciples. From his human image into a glorious image. And his face did shine as the sun. And his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses... And Elias, which is Elijah, talking with him. And then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. (laughs) Well, we we don't want to waste time with that. It's just an interesting way of approaching this glorification of Jesus before them. It's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles. One for thee, and one one for Moses, and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a a bright cloud overshadowed them. In a sense, it was as if God was saying, I think you're missing the point, Peter. Behold a voice out of the cloud which, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face. They finally got it, you see. This sometimes stirs in my heart as, as, as to what I just mentioned a little while ago about the fact that I wonder sometimes if we really are worshiping God. And that we really understand the presence of God and of Christ among us. They finally fell on their face and were sore afraid. Yes, there's to be fear of the Lord. 
I don't know that we in the church today, especially in the Western world and especially in this country, still uh, are we getting what it means to fear the Lord with reverence and respect. And Jesus came and touched them, it says, and said, Arise and be not afraid. Isn't, isn't that just something that God is doing here with John as well? When you finally get what it means to be in the very presence of God in worship, and we sense that fear that, God's, uh, that the Lord will come and He touches us, He says, Don't be afraid. There is a fear, but don't be afraid. There is a reverence you're supposed to show, but don't be afraid. Don't be afraid like the world is going to be afraid. And the world today is not afraid of of anything. And I wonder if the world is not afraid of anything that belongs to God because we are not showing the true fear of God before them in and through our lives. Do you understand what I'm saying? One of the biggest criticisms of the church today is what? Hypocrisy. We say one thing, we do another. And it's time that the church begin to do what it says. If we worship the Lord, then we live for the Lord. The Apostle Paul drew on Moses' experience. And he applies it to us in 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. He says, but we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed, listen, what he says, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. What is he saying in a nutshell? He's saying spending time with God ought to change us. Spending time with God ought to change us. Do you agree with that statement? His glory ought to rub off on us as it did on Moses, on the prophets, on Daniel, on the apostles. As we truly spend time in God's presence, people should see in our faces that we have been with God. You know, I, I know I say this a lot. We, we talk about this after church. And you know, I, I'm not, I, I got to tell you, we're all human here, aren't we? We all, we all had a struggle with the same kind of struggles. And, you know, that's why we're called to encourage each other because we go through the same things. But I tell you this, we need to change our attitude after we meet together. Because I can tell you this right now, we're in that season of the year where we can't wait to go out that door so that we can get on in front of a TV and cheer a bunch of guys that don't know how to play football. <laughs> you guys know who I'm talking about. And don't tell me just because they won a couple of games, they're already, you know, the champions. Do you see what I'm saying? We turn so quickly... what we have experienced to what we want to experience in the flesh. Think, something to think about.
what we call worship time, what we, what we call our time of worship and our time of praise, that is our opportunity to draw near to the Lord and to spend and appreciate our time with Him and do so together where we can encourage each other of the importance of worship, the importance of praise, the importance of surrender. It has to be more than just music for us. It has to be a lot more than music, than just music for us. Because I can tell you this, you can go all over the place, everywhere. I don't like their music over here. I like it over here because they got a bigger band or they got a big, better sound system or they, they don't do this and they don't do that. And, and you know, and, the, uh, you know, and everybody's just talking about the outward, but you're, we're forgetting what we're here for. The question is, is it what we're here for or who we're here for? I can tell you this, music is very important to me. I have a degree in music. All my life, I, I've spent, you know, Realizing that God gave me a gift. But He also gave me talent, but the talent has to be developed. Just like any of us. God gives us a gift, but He also gives us talents that need to be developed. They need to get better. They can be better. The things that we do for God, they can all get better. But there's a gift. The gift never changes because it's God's gift. It's Him with us. It's His, His strength with us. It's His wisdom given to us. But, but all of these things, you know, I... I, I I would much rather that we sing out of key, but that we sing with all of our heart, that we do so because we love God, and we just want to give Him the best that we've got. Then think that it has to be, like it just has to be so attractive to everybody. Well, you know, we can be so attractive to people, but if they come only for that, they're not attracted to Jesus. It's Jesus that we love. It's Jesus that we serve. It's Jesus that we should sing and play for and, and all of that. And we just ask you to accompany us. We want to do this before the throne of grace. We always talk about getting before the throne of God to worship Him. That's what we're doing here. As we go now through the entirety of the, of the book of Revelation, we are going to see things. We are going to see things. As they are described to us through the eyes of the Apostle John, eyes that are just as much in wonder. Now remember, he saw Jesus. He saw the miracles. He saw Jesus do great and awesome things. But then he saw the glorified Christ. And it killed him. In a good sense. And we are going to realize to some extent... Why the response to God's glory will always be and should always be with great fear and awe. Not as the fear of the world. Because that's always based on terror. It's based on, you know, uh, horrible things. It's based on fear. But, but uh, when, I, when I say fear, I'm talking about the, the ugly fear, you know. But the godly fear of reverence and respect toward an awesome and mighty God, that's what we need to concern ourselves with. I want you to consider John's response. Look again at at verse 17. It says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John was understandably overwhelmed by the awesome vision of Jesus and the splendor of his glory. It certainly happened many times in the scriptures, as I said before. Consider the response of Isaiah when Isaiah was given a a vision of God. 
In Isaiah chapter 6, when King Uzziah died, and we're told that in the year that King Uzziah died, by the way, this is the response to God's glory. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple. We sang that song last week, didn't we? I see the Lord seated on his throne. Those were the words of Isaiah. And his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, these were the, the angels, the angelic beings that served before the throne of God. Uh, each one had six wings with twain, which means two. With two he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. But notice the response. Then said I, Woe is me. Woe is me. Now I know this is more Yiddish than anything, but it's oy vey. You all have heard that, that statement? Oy vey. The Jews, the Jews say this a lot. Oy vey. This is really comparable to that. Oy vey, it's, it's, it's the, from the depth of the heart. I am totally wiped out. I am totally undone. I am disintegrated before the presence of God. There is the implication here that he in, in fact does fall before God in a million pieces. For I am undone. That's what it means to be undone. Disintegration, when you break that word down, part of the word is integration, right? To be integrated means to be held together. To disintegrate means to be blown apart. That's what it means to be undone. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we open our hearts with eyes of faith to God, we're going to see the glorified Christ. What does that do? How does that affect you? What about Ezekiel's response to God's glory in Ezekiel chapter 1? Boy, there's some interesting things in the book of Ezekiel. I hope you've been reading through that uh, and you're reading through the scriptures. But here in Ezekiel 1 verse 28, as he's describing this, this vision that he's been given, he says, as, as the appearance of the bow, that's the rainbow, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell upon my face. Notice the response. And I heard a voice of one that spake. He fell upon his face. Does that sound familiar? He doesn't fall upon his face because some pastor or some minister or somebody says, listen, we're all going to fall on our face before God. Because that's not the way it's done. That's when we open our hearts. We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, I need heart surgery. And you're the great physician. And when we open our hearts and faith to God, our eyes of faith will see Him and we just, what do we do? How do we respond? 
I'm going to give you another example of responding to the glory of God. In Peter's response to Jesus' catch of fish. Now you might think, where did that come from? It's very important for you to understand, when Jesus did things in His earthly ministry, when He did things that were completely supernatural, He was showing the glory of God. He was showing Himself to be the Son of God and God the Son. There in Luke chapter 5, there's an account where Jesus has had to get on, you know, on, on, on the boat, you know, to, to teach. And anyway, long story short, you, you know, they, he says, let's launch out to the deep. You know, he's in a fishing boat with Peter. And let's launch out. And, and the, 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 the story is, of course, that, you know, they, they've been fishing all night. They didn't catch anything. These are professional fishermen. But Jesus tells us, let's launch out into the deep. Let's go out. Uh, that's kind of telling us, you know, the Lord is telling us, you know what, as Christians, we need to have faith to go out and launch out into the deep for our own, the depth of our own spiritual lives as well as bringing others to Christ. We need to launch out there because we, we, we live too often in the shallows of our existence. We need to get out there and trust the Lord. So anyway, long story short, they, they go out there and, and Peter says, you know, Lord, I'm the professional. I'm the professional fisherman here, Lord. But, okay, we'll do this. And they've cast their nets. And the catch was so big that they had to call the other boat to come and help them bring the catch in. And you know what the response was? When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees. And he said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It was as if he was at that moment just dead. That's how we feel when we stand in the presence of the glory of God. And Jesus, even in his humanness, was without sin. He was the glory of God. And Peter couldn't take it. But Jesus was preparing him, wasn't he? How about Paul? How about Paul's response on the road to Damascus when he was Saul of Tarsus? And he's ready to go get him some Christians. I want to get me some Christians. Get some more of them. Round them up. Let's persecute those guys. Yeah, right. As he journeyed, it says in Acts 9, verse 3, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there there shined round about him a light from heaven, and he fell to the earth. Is there any other response? 
He fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? See, because Saul was still this determined Pharisee, this determined Jew, who just couldn't stop destroying the church that he felt was destroying his people. He says, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. I'm Yeshua. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? What a response. He now recognizes who this is. And he recognizes who's in control. He recognizes who has the power. And he recognizes who has the authority. It is Jesus, the one that he's been persecuting. The one that he's trying to kill by trying to kill those who have followed him. The Lord said unto him, Arise, go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And we know what happens after that. But did you notice he fell to the earth? He was trembling. He was astonished. Folks, may we not lose sight of how we are to approach God, bowing ourselves before Him. Bowing ourselves before Him. Will will this make a difference in your worship, folks? Will it make a difference what you're hearing this evening? You're not letting me know anything, but I hope it does. I really hope it does. I really hope it makes a tremendous difference in your worship, in your life, in your praise toward God. I hope it makes a tremendous difference in your devotional life on a daily basis. I hope it, may, I hope it makes a tremendous difference in your, in, your, in your reading of the scriptures. I hope that you begin to really want to know this Jesus that John saw in all of his glory. Well, let's get back to John because something happens when he falls to his face as dead. We're told here, uh, getting back to Revelation 17... 1 verses 17 18. He said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And we know what that means, right? I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I have no beginning, I have no end. I'm the beginning and the end, but I, I'm, I'm eternal. Uh, I'm the author and the finisher. I'm the starting line and I'm the finish line. I'm all of those things. I am the first, I am the last. I am he that liveth. And was dead. Oh! Do we know who that is? With all due respect to Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they have a problem because they, they, they don't believe that Jesus is Alpha and Omega. They don't, they don't really believe that He's the first and the last. They, but this pretty much clears it up. Because when did God die as far as if, if it's only Jehovah? But Jesus died. And he says, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Well, you know, there is much to be said. There is much to be said about the loving touch of Jesus. Let's come to that 
place here tonight. The, the loving touch of Jesus. In, in a world of so much hatred and wickedness, evil, uh, just surrounding us in, in all corners of, of, of this world, it, it's wonderful to know that Jesus' love surpasses every feeling. It surpasses every emotion that man has for each other and for self. The love of God and the love of Christ. His touch, just to be touched by Jesus. His touch, as comforting and as compassionate as we would ever need it, expresses not only His tender-heartedness, but it also expresses His deity. It expresses His deity. Why? More than just the fact that He is living and was dead, and He's alive forevermore. More than just that. It expresses His deity because His touch heals. His touch comforts. The Bible tells us that only God truly heals and only God truly comforts. His touch removes all fear. Is this not what He says oftentimes in the Scriptures? He touches and says, Be not afraid. Fear not. I am with you. Fear not. His touch Removes all fear because as John tells us in 1 John 4, uh, 17 through 19, he says, herein is our love made perfect, which means complete. If you want to understand what complete love is, herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. See, the people that are not going to have boldness in the day of judgment are the people that don't think they're going to be judged. They just think that, you know, they're just going to die and, you know, this life is over and that's it. No, the Bible tells us there's going to be judgment. As a matter of fact, the book of Revelation is all about judgment to some, to, to some degree, of course. But it, it has a lot about judging those who have rejected Jesus Christ. But we will have confidence and we will have boldness in the day of judgment because as He is, so are we in this world. He says, I will be with you, I will be in you. I will put my spirit in you. And then he says, there is no fear in love. So when he says to John, John, fear not. He says, I love you. I love you. And I know you love me. He says, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear. Because fear has torment. The, 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 the fear of the world has torment. It torments people. And Christians sometimes get tormented. Uh, uh, Christians can get tormented by the fear of the world. And we ought not to real. Uh, experience that. Why? Because Jesus said, I'm with you. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. You're not made complete if you're, if you're fearing like the world fears. If you have that fear of torment in your life, you're, you, your love isn't complete. Jesus wants it to be complete. He continues to come to you. He continues to make himself known, but he wants your love to be complete. And then John says, we love Him. 
Because He first loved us. We love Him because He first loved us. So our love can be complete if we surrender our lives to the Lord. Completely surrender. You know, in telling John not to fear, Jesus gave him three reasons for confidence. Three reasons for that boldness, as it were. But He gives him three reasons for confidence. And and I'm speaking, of course, back here in, in, in Revelation 1, verse 18. First of all, We don't need to fear life. We don't need to fear life. There are a lot of people who don't want to go out the door in the morning or at any time of day, you know, they just, I'm afraid of what's going to happen if I go out. I'm afraid, you know, of one thing or another. They they have this fear of life. I, I hate to say it, but a lot of times some people live their lives according to, you know, horoscopes rather than according, you know, trusting the Word of God, you know. Ooh, I read my horoscope today. It says if I go out, this bad thing's going to happen to me, so I better stay home. You know, that's fearing life in a kind of a mundane sense. But, but we don't need to fear life. Why? We don't need to fear life because He is the living one. He says, I am alive forevermore. I am alive and I want to be with you. I'm going to be with you because I promise I'll be with you. Jesus is the first, He's the last, He is the author, He's the finisher of our faith. He begins, and what He begins in us, He completes always. And I'm so thankful for that. Though sometimes we think, Lord, are you, uh, where are you? <laughs> are you completing anything in me today? I hope so. He, he always is, even if we don't recognize it. He's going to finish what He started in you. But you need to, you got to let Him know that, you know. you got to quit trying to evade Him, you need, you, you need to spend time with Him so He can make that clear to you. But we live and we move and we have our being because He lives. Because He lives. We used to sing that song. I, I, I love to sing that every day if I could. Just, just because of the message. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Does that do anything to you guys? That's a song, by the way, I was just quoting. I didn't know if you wanted me to go ahead and sing it for you. I don't know. But, you know, does it say anything to you? It's okay, guys. I know it's been a long day. I'm tired too. But I want to see a little life here. A little bit of life really, you know, make me feel good. Because you know what? I've got to get back here tomorrow morning at 8. I hope you're here too. And I hope to have this very same attitude, which is, man, what a joy it is to live life because of Jesus Christ. All right. That, that sounds a little better. All right. So, because he lives, we can face every day with confidence. Every day. No matter what it is that we face. But here's another thing. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear life and we don't need to fear death. Why? Because Jesus died and He conquered death. Because He rose again from the dead. He conquered death. He says, I am He that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. In other words, verily, 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 this is the truth. We don't need to fear death. Sometimes we do. 
Put your hands, I should say, put your lives in the hands of the one who made you. Because he knows how to keep you. But no matter whether in life or in death, he is still Lord. And we will still have life after death. That's what Jesus Christ secured for us on the cross and rising from the tomb. Thirdly, we don't need to fear eternity. In a sense, we're saying people, we don't need to fear the future. We don't need to fear eternity. But if we want to bring it a little closer to home, we don't need to fear the future. And the reason is because Jesus holds the keys of Hades and of death. Look at Revelation 1.18. The last part. Well, let's read the whole thing. I am he that liveth and was dead, and, and, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have, which means, if you'll notice, the word for have there in the Greek is echo. Just like the echo, oh, 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 oh. It holds, doesn't it? And that's the idea. And have, which means he holds the keys of hell and of death. It's interesting that that John does not record this in his description of Jesus' glory. He was pretty good at letting us know what he saw. You know, he saw the eyes. You know, he saw the, the waistband. He, he saw the robe to the ground. He, they, uh, you know, everything that he saw, the feet of brass. You know, he, he saw all this. But he doesn't mention the keys. But Jesus states it. That he held the keys of Hades and death. And these keys were evidently purchased Those keys were purchased with Christ's own blood. For according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, whoops, going the wrong direction. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, notice, through death he might destroy, which means he nullifies him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the believer in Jesus Christ, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, the believer in Jesus Christ need not fear death or Hades. Now Hades, is you'll notice it was translated as hell in, in, uh, in verse 18. But uh, it, it's the word... Uh, The Hades is is the Greek word. The Hebrew word is actually Sheol uh, in Hebrew. And this is describing that unseen abode of the unbelieving dead. But it is often called hell. Now, there is in in Luke chapter 16, and you can look this, uh, read it tonight, you know the story of of, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, where Jesus talks about this, this account. Or, you know, some people say, well, it was just a parable, but no. You know, I, you know there, there are times when you know that something's a parable. You know that sometimes Jesus is describing as something that has truly happened. And he's not going to give you some stuff that doesn't have uh, not only 
spiritual meaning, but it also has uh, literal meaning too. So uh, when you read that story, you realize that, you know, he, uh, there is this person who dies, Lazarus, uh, and then the rich man, and both of them die, and the rich man is buried, and, the, and Lazarus is carried by the angels. And he's carried into what is called Abraham's bosom. So Jesus is actually describing these two compartments in Hades, or what we would say generally speaking is, is just the, the place of the, of the dead, the, the grave as it were. But beyond that is, you know, there is the Abraham's bosom and then there is Hades or hell, where people cannot go in and people cannot come out. But in Abraham's bosom, that is for the believer who is saved, the one who trusts that everything that God has said about a, a Redeemer coming, if they died before the cross, they're going to be, wait there, and we'll see in just a moment how they get taken out. So, with that in mind, this, this is what we're dealing with when we talk about Sheol or Hell or Hades here, because if it is just dealing with those who are the unbelieving that are in this compartment waiting for the, the resurrection of the dead, uh, after the great white throne judgment that, uh, that we see in Revelation chapter 20, we're, we're, to, we're actually told what happens to death in Hades there. And, and so we're going to look at it. It's, it. it's verses 13 through 15 of Revelation 20. It says, In the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their work. So there's judgment. But notice the next phrase, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Death and hell, the very same things that we see that Jesus has the keys of. He says these, uh, death and hell, were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now when we get to chapter 20, hopefully before our next birthday, we'll, uh, you know, talk a little bit more about it then. But it says, and whosoever uh, was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we realize then how serious the judgment is if we reject or if anybody rejects the Lord. So men and women outside of Jesus Christ have every reason to fear that event. But the child of God should never fear death, Hades, or the lake of fire. None of us should ever fear these things. Why? Because Christ, our Savior, has and holds the keys of death and Hades. He has and He holds the keys of death and Hades. A key. We all know what keys do. A key is something that you can use to lock someone or something in or out, right? You can lock something in, you can lock something out. You can lock someone in, or you can lock them out. So the key has a tremendous power to it. On the other hand, a key is also a symbol of release. A key is a symbol of release. Jesus has freed us from the bondage of sin and death. Isaiah prophesied concerning Jesus, and, and, and then Paul affirms that truth. First of all, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, and this is something that Jesus himself quoted when he went into the synagogue. But in, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach... I guess I should show it to you. The Spirit of, God, of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, and notice this, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to them that are bound. Because Jesus has the keys, you see. And Paul affirms that in Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9, when he says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascendeth up on high... He led captivity captive. Those who had been captive 
and, and waiting for the Redeemer to come. Now that Jesus has died, was buried and has risen again, now He leads captivity captive and He gives gifts unto men. And then in verse 9 it says, Now He that ascended, what is it? But that He also descended first into the lowest parts of the earth. The way he, he does so to what? To release the captives. Those, if you like, in Abraham's bosom, awaiting for their redemption. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 through 57, gives us a little bit of an understanding then of the importance of our resurrection. When he says, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And notice this, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us, giveth, giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us the victory. We have the victory already if we believe in Jesus Christ. If we have believed unto salvation... If we today believe in our heart the Lord Jesus and, and that we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that He's risen from the dead, we have this victory. Yay! Praise the Lord! Hallelujah! Now follow, follow with me here, following the, following the, come on! Follow, you know, I tell you what, if you do some praise in the Lord, just, I mean, with, with, with real hearts, you know, there'll be some turkey for you tomorrow. <laughs> somewhere, somewhere. Now, following the revelation of Christ in glory, you know, the one that John saw, following that revelation of Christ in glory, the Apostle John is once again commanded to write, isn't he? He says, God tells, Jesus tells him to write. And the subject of his recorded writing is given to him and to us in, the, in three tenses as we read it in verse uh, 19. And notice I've, 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 I've separated them by color here, but, but notice, write the things which thou hast seen. What is that? Past. Okay, we're talking about tenses here. Remember English lit, uh, English classes? No? Can I have English here? Alright. Write the things which thou hast seen. Past tense. Uh, the things which are present. Oh, good. And the things which shall be hereafter. Future. There we go. Man. I wish I had those little, little boxes with gold stars. I'd give you each and every one of you one of those. So here's the key to the whole of the book of Revelation. Here's the key. The first tense is the past. What John had already experienced. What had he experienced? The glorious vision of Christ. Write the things which thou hast seen. Chapter 1. The second tense is the present. The present or the current experiences, which is, which is going to be chapters 2 and 3. What, what's that? The things which are. What is the things which are at John's time? The church. The churches. The third tense is the future. The things which shall be hereafter. Things which we have not yet seen. 
So this clearly appears to be the divine outline of the book of Revelation. And by the way, this is the only book in the Bible that gives us an outline of this kind. It really makes it really clear for us what the whole book is all about. And how it is subdivided. And these subdivisions are very important for us to understand before we go into chapter 2. Because chapter 1 is John's experience of the glorified Christ, which is now history, right? Because it's past. Chapters 2 and 3 are John's record of the present message of Christ to the seven churches. And finally, the main purpose of the book is uh, being prophetic. John was to introduce the events uh, preceding, which is before, culminating in, and following the second coming of Jesus Christ. We find all of that in chapters 4 through 22. The events preceding, the culminating in, and the following of the second coming of Jesus Christ. All of that in chapters 4 through 22. It is important for us to understand a couple of very important points before we continue on into chapter 2. And first of all, these three divisions, the past, the present, and the future, these three divisions are quite clear, and they do not overlap. Listen carefully, they do not overlap. This is significant. They do not overlap. Each is complete in itself. And each is distinct from the other two. We cannot at any time lift events from one division and try to place them in another. It is important to know there's a past, there's a present, and there's a future. And I want you to remember that this is God's own division of the book. This is not John's division, this is God's division. We need to hold fast to it. And if we do so, we cannot go astray in our, under, in our desire to understand its meaning. Secondly, we need to grasp the meaning of a term, the term metatauta. Metatauta. Two Greek words that uh, we've, we've already seen here in just a moment. We'll see what it means. Let's look at it. Metatauta. The word hereafter. The one that signifies the future. Meta tauta means after these things. And this is a very significant key to understanding where the church is going to be after chapter 3. Because remember, we go from present to what? The future. So it is, pres- it is presented to us significantly twice, this phrase, meta tauta. Here in verse 19... But it's also going to be in verse 1 of chapter 4. You'll see it there at the bottom. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. So where where were we in chapters 2 and 3? Well, let me ask this. Where will we be in chapters 2 and 3? Here on earth with the churches, presently. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. Now we're not on the earth anymore, uh, you know. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, come up here, calling up, and I will show thee things which must be, must be hereafter. Meta tauta. After these things, these things will happen. After these things. 
So it's crucial that we understand that this simple yet profound phrase sets in motion the program of Jesus Christ. The literal translation of the phrase in verse 19, and as we shall see when we get to chapter 4, will help us with the prophetic implications of the church's future. Here it is. Here's the literal translation of this phrase. The things which you are about to see after these things. I should have written that up there for you, but I'm going to repeat it a couple of times. I want you to write it down. The literal translation of the phrase is this. The things which you are about to see after these things. Meditata. I will show you the things which you are about to see after these things. Very important. So here's a good place to ask the question. After what things? Oh, you got to come back ne- next time for that. See. But after the things, here it is, very, very clearly. I'm not going to hold it from you. It's after the things of the church are completed. After the things of the church are completed. These are the things that are future. Things that haven't taken place yet. Oh, by the way, there's a question. <laughs> things that are future, things that haven't taken place yet, but shall take place after the church's testimony is finished upon the earth. So just consider that from chapter 4 on, the church is no longer mentioned. That's significant. And we should rejoice for that. The events from Revelation 4 onward will will concern the ages of judgment and the kingdom and the new earth. And the last verse of chapter 1 will actually give us the key, another key, to the symbolism of the previous revelation. In other words, Jesus kindly interprets his own images. Let's look at verse 20, and we're almost done. Jesus said, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So Jesus makes it real clear. Whatever may have been hidden is now being revealed by the Lord himself. The mystery of the seven stars is no longer a mystery because it's shown to be a representation of the messengers of the churches. The word... Angelos, if you, if you want to spell it in the Greek, it's, 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 it would be transliterated A-G-G-E-L-O-S, but it's pronounced Angelos, even though it's spelled A-G-G-E-L-O-S. But Angelos, from which we get, that's of course where we get the word for angels. And that's why it's translated as angels here. It seems that the weight of evidence, though, as we go through and, use, and see this word used, will always point to the angels as being messengers or being... The, the pastors, as it were, the shepherds of these churches or the ministers of these churches. We'll talk about that more when we get into chapter 2. But what appears to be more important than who they are is where these angels or messengers are. That's more important, actually, than who they are. And where they are is in the right hand of Jesus. Now, please understand this. They are in the right hand of Jesus which symbolizes that by His power and authority, because the right hand or the right arm, whenever we see that in the Old Testament, it is is describing the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. So this symbolizes that by His power and authority, they are, the churches and the angels, are in a place of strength 
in a place of stability and in a place of safety. Strength, stability, and safety. Why? Because they are in the hand, the right hand of Jesus Christ. This is an Old Testament type or, 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 or an Old Testament description as, a, as it were. To use the right hand, the right arm. You read it all the time through, uh, read uh, Psalm uh, 16 verse 11. Uh, Psalm, yeah, Psalm 16 verse 11 has, has that uh, mention of that right, the right arm. But you know, that, that's symbolizing power and strength, safety, security. So that, that's a very important thing. Why? Because when we read through the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, not all of them are very perfect. As a matter of fact, most of them are not perfect. But yet they're, 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 they're being warned, and we'll see that some of them are, are going to be commended, others are going to be condemned. But the fact is that at this place, we see Jesus holding them. So they're safe for now. The seven candlesticks or the lampstands are symbols of the seven churches. Of course, we talked about that. Uh, the menorah, you remember we talked about that last time. But I want you to remember what the symbol means. The symbol means that the church is to hold forth the light of the world. The church and the members of the body of Christ are to hold forth the light of the world. The glorious light. The glorious light of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we do so, why? Because we spend time in the presence of God. We spend time in His glory. And that glory rubs off on us so that we can take the glory to others. And we close with these verses of Scripture. Jesus himself in Matthew 5.14 says to us, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. You are the light of the world. Yes, you church, you're the light of the world. So shine. Shine brightly for Jesus Christ. Acts 13.47 For so has the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the Gentiles, that thou shouldst be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. You are to be a light for the Gentiles. The light for, for those who are in all the nations, in other words. Ephesians 5, verse 8, Paul says, For you, are, you were sometimes darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. That says, walk as children of light. Let your conduct be as children of light. The walk is, is, is a, a picture of living. It is a picture of acting. It is a picture of doing. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2.15 That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And lastly, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5 You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Again, we need to shine with the glory of God and the glory of Christ in our lives. But we need to shine, not for ourselves, not to look into the mirror and say, oh, look how I shine. We need to shine for the world to see that there is a light that they have not had to understand the things which they don't know about, but they'll know about it if they see the light of Christ in you. And too often we, we, we sometimes turn people off because we say one thing, we do something else. We have to get our act together with, 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 with the Lord. We need to spend more time with Him. We need to spend more time in His Word. We need to spend more time in devotion. We need to spend time just waiting upon the Lord. And you know, service is going to come out of that. But I'm not trying to encourage you. Go, be busy for the Lord. 
Because when we get to Ephesus, when we get to the church of Ephesus, they were a, they were a machine as a church. But they, but what does it say of the of the of the church in Ephesus? They left their first love. So if you feel that you have left your first love, you need to come back. It, it, it never says that you lost your first love. You don't lose your first love. You leave it. That's an action that we take away from God. But the Lord says, but if you come back. And that's what some of us need to do. We need to come back to where we have that, 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 uh, that remembrance of that beautiful communion that we have when we first met Jesus. When we ourselves felt as dead in the presence of a glorious God. And yet He said to us, but, but, but fear not. And He touches us and He changes our lives. He says, I'm going to be with you now. And I'll be with you always. So don't forget that. Live as a light that shines and reflects the glory of Christ because you've spent that time with Him. So let the glorious presence of our Lord and Savior affect your lives and cause you to draw nearer and dearer to Him. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. I'll tell you what, let's all stand.